fight where I took off out of Warner Springs, climbed up our local mountain Palomar, hopped over to Mount San Jacinto, then hopped over the pass up to San Gorgonio Big Bear, then turned around and flew down to the border of Mexico and back. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Hello, Soaring community, and welcome back to the podcast. We're going to mix things up a little bit today for you. We're heading across the country. I'm going to hand the microphone over to our co-producer, Mitch, who is just outside of L.A. there. He's going to share with you his interview with glider pilot Howie Bull. Howie comes from a long line of aviators, starting with his great-grandfather, who started flying in the 1920s with the Army ROTC and eventually flying for United Airlines. Now, his grandfather... He was also an airline pilot, as well as his father. Howie started flying at 13 in gliders and then soloed on his 14th birthday. He then started flying powered and soloed at 16. He later became a tow pilot and continued to fly gliders. And then he himself started flying with the airlines. Howie has flown all over the world, not just for the airlines, but also in gliders. And today he's going to share some of those adventures with us. Also on the podcast today, we welcome back Sergio, the Soaring Master, with some advice on blue days. All that and more now on Soaring the Sky. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America. And they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. Howie, hello. Hey, good afternoon, Mitch. Hey, welcome to the pod. I am... uh calling you from the Soaring Academy, otherwise known as uh, Crystal Airport. Just sitting here next to the runway, so if we have some occasional tow plane noise, uh, please bear with me. Good to finally get you on and um, have you share a little bit about your uh, your aviation and soaring background and all that with us. Excited. Yeah, it's great to be on, Mitch. Uh, it looks like it's probably a good day for Wave out at the Soaring Academy today. Looked like with this weather system coming from the northwest, that things should be good. Yeah, well, there were a couple folks that uh, I think somebody was up for two and a half hours here um, on a on a day that um, well, you have to know where and how to find it. But when you do, yeah, they got up to twelve thousand something and uh, field levels thirty five hundred. But uh, yeah, had a good good couple flights, and so it's a little windy, uh, so it might be a little wind noise, a little tow plane noise, but we'll. Uh, We'll, we'll kind of slog through it. So, yeah, first time I met you was down at uh, Warner Springs. I was um, dropping off my glider for a little little work. You were nice enough to kind of help me with my trailer there when I was struggling. I haven't trailered that thing very much, so that was, uh, yeah, that was cool of you. And I think that's where we, we sort of first met and then later kind of started following you on Instagram and your various escapades around the, the Southern California skies and then eventually up here at, at Crystal. So yeah, so here we are. Yeah, Warner Springs is a cool place. I've flown out there for the last 20 years or so and during the summertime I kind of just live out there with my glider and watch the forecast each day of, hey, am I going to go fly the sailplane or do I have to pack up and go to work for a couple of days before I come back out? <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's it's pretty. It is. It's a cool place. Looks like a pretty active glider port and quite a few uh, trailers and gliders. And I mean, how many like active private pilots do you think during the season are are kind of flying, you know, every week or two? It's probably kind of like any marina. We have about fifty to sixty glider trailers out at any point on a Saturday. Maybe ten to fifteen people show up, and weekdays usually two to three. Okay. I've been trying to kind of set up a text message group with Bill Palmer and some others. If if the forecast looks good, hey, let's all meet up and go out and fly. Right, right. Yeah. Well, that's pretty. Uh, yeah, that's pretty pretty decent as uh, as glider ports go on the on the West Coast. So, but before we 
jump yeah too far ahead let's um what we normally do on the on the pod is we uh we just start with uh you know guest pilot kind of going through their their bio a little bit and and yours is fairly extensive so we might break it into a couple a couple pieces but let's just start with your inspiration for getting into aviation and uh and some of the early days that led up to your initial certifications and and some of the early types of uh aircraft that you were that you're flying maybe let's start there yeah it's kind of lucky um some people just spend their whole life streaming of flying and while i've always enjoyed flying also have come from a family that's been pretty active in aviation my great-grandfather started flying in the 1920s up at uc berkeley and the army rotc went to the military flew then united airlines world war ii united airlines and so forth my Grandpa then flew as an airline pilot, my dad as an airline pilot, and then as myself, I guess I really didn't have much choice but to kind of go the same direction. Uh-huh. Um, growing up, we had a little Cessna 195, and we'd fly around, go camping and whatnot. But as I got into my early teen years, it's gliders were something where you could fly on a glider first before you could ever fly in an airplane. So when I was about 13, went out to Lake Elsinore um, to their glider club there, LESC, and started flying and on my 14th birthday ended up soloing under the guise of Richard Ensign, a great instructor that had been out there for decades. Um, we then bought a little Cessna, started flying that uh, 140 little tail dragger with a 90 horsepower engine. And I kind of instantaneously fell in love with the tail dragger flying. Like the gliders were cool, but it was a lot of just kind of being towed up and then just drifting back down to the ground. Mm-hmm. And But still with the gliders, you can get your license a little bit earlier. So on my 16th birthday, soloed the Cessna 140 over to the glider port, did my private glider ride, which was great, but that was kind of the end of soaring until I got out of high school and was looking for a job and went out to sky sailing at Warner Springs. And fortunately they hired me and started flying in their super cub towing gliders. But Hey, if you're around gliders, you're probably going to get current in gliders. <laughs> so I started flying in the Grobe 103 out there, the 233 and, Still, it was just kind of okay, just drifting down. But then I flew their 136, and I could see, like, a difference between just flying a glider and maybe flying a sailplane. And so with the 136, it would be cool to tow up, see how low you could get off, and then how high you could climb. And so kind of out here in the Mountain West, we start a bit higher, about 3,000 feet, but also it's really common to go up to 14,000 feet in a little glider on any summer afternoon. So, so wait, so, you're, on, so your, real, yeah. your real sort of soaring stuff was, you said you were, what, 18, 19, and you were, you were towing out at Warner, and then you just kind of, and then you just kind of slowly worked your way into, uh, in, in, into gliders. That was, that was kind of your, your time there where you started. Yeah, it, flying the tow plane was a job, but, and going to school, and on days off, it's like, hey, how can I get flight time? What's the most affordable way to fly? And, mm-hmm. Gliders, if you can stay up, are just a great way to build experience. So we always talk about stick and rudder, and it's great to fly coordinated. But in a glider or sailplane, you know immediately if you're coordinated or not. It definitely helps with how long you can stay up, how rewarding your flight happens to be. Right, right, right. And then maybe maybe kind of take us along. So you're, you're sort of high school, post-high school, towing, flying, or soaring a little bit down there. And then... Somewhere along the line, you you end up in in the in the cockpit of a of an airliner and maybe some some points in between. Yeah, the goal of flying always is just have fun, but there's also some great ways to make fun into a career. So going through school, just build flight time. Flew skydivers and the Twin Otter and the later the Plotus Porter, really fun old tail dragger turbine engine. And then the big break was going to SkyWest Airlines when I got out of college got hired to fly a turboprop out of Palm Springs and did that for the next several years and days off would go back to the glider port, fly a tow plane or hopefully fly a cell planes and just kind of fly around and have fun. Nice. So, and maybe, you know, flying all these different, uh, you know, these different kind of uh, aircraft, you know, how does, how does all that kind of cross pollinate or, or, or not, or do you ever find that there's moments where you, it, it takes you a little extra to, to transition, you know, between the airliner that you just got out of and 
you know, glider? Or does it all just kind of work seamlessly together in a perfect continuum? Or, I mean, how does that, how does that, uh, how does that work for you? I think it's probably just like anything. If you do it enough, there's really no difference going from one plane to another. If you take a couple months off last year with the pandemic, I flew the gliders more than I'd ever flown before and the airliners less than I'd ever flown before. And so you finally notice the speed of the airliner where normally everything just kind of flies the same. Right on. Are you mostly flying on the on the West Coast here or have you have you been to different glider ports around the country or the world? And, and, and if so, could you maybe, you know, share with listeners a little bit about what are, what are some of your favorites or, you know, some that you, you want to get to one of these days or years? Yeah. Uh, whenever possible, like we try to go on vacation a couple of times a year and if we can incorporate flying into it, it's always a blast. In college one year for spring break, went out to Australia and stayed in their little cabins, flew their sailplanes. And at the time they had a pretty cool diverse fleet with, an old LaBelle, uh, MDM Fox aerobatic glider. They had a, a Pegasus. And the whole point of going out there was to fly their Genesis Group G2, kind of a forward-swept flying wing glider, really rather unique. And so that was one of my first getaways of making a soaring vacation. I just got back a couple weeks ago from flying over in southern France in Provence with the CNVV. That's the French National Soaring Team's uh, training grounds as well as their school and just a really great experience. Yeah. So maybe, um, we could talk a little bit more about that. I mean, it, it looks like you're going to follow you on, on Instagram and, and on Insta, you're, uh, you're what at, what is it on the flight deck? Is that it? Uh, you know, it's from the flight deck underscore. So yeah, that's the Instagram destination. Okay. Right on. So from from the flight deck, um, and then yeah, I saw a bunch of your your posts and stories while you were kicking around over there. It looks like you were there for for a good what was it, a week and a half or something. Got to fly uh, a few different gliders, and uh, yeah, maybe you just kind of you know, talk to us about about that trip a little bit. Yeah, it was kind of an awesome trip overall. I went over to Germany at first to uh, the Schemper factory in Kirschheim Untertech. And I met up with their sales associate, Benj, a real nice guy, former instructor down at CNVB, and checked out the production line of the new Ventus V3s. Really interested in a sailplane and checked that out. I love the concept of the front electric sustainers, the Fezes. And so I ended up having an opportunity to fly one of those and put an order on in kind of a cool, just side trip then leaving Kirschheim Wintertech was going down to CNVV. Uh, hey, I guess well, I, hold on. Let's, let's, let's just hold on. Let's pause, again. Yeah. let's pause on. Let's pause on the Ventus three. That that seems <laughs> so, like a so off course. That, yeah. that seems like a pretty that seems like a pretty uh, pretty relevant stop on the uh, on the map there. So yeah. um, first of all, that's an amazing glider. And what's the build kind of lead time that they're looking at now? What is it? Two two and a half years, I guess, to to be able to get your get your hands on it. I think their most popular ones with the self-launch are about a three-year out, but they also kind of build subgroups of the FESs and the sustainers. So the FES right now is about 18 months out. Okay, not too, uh, not too bad. And and what what um, and and you've presumably flown a, a variety of different gliders. What what drew you to the to the Ventus three over, say, some of the other um, some of the other options out there in, in the, you know, Schleicher universe or what, sorry, what's the South African Yonkers down yeah, there. Yonkers. What, what, what kind of, yeah, how did you, I how think, did you kind of land there with, with the, with the Ventus? I think always like, if it looks good, it's probably going to fly good. And so, um, I love the wing shape of the Schemperf gliders. I've had a couple in the past started with a discus CS and then moved on to a Nimbus 4, not really related, but still beautiful gliders. And when the Ventus 3 came out, it just looked like it had phenomenal performance, a really nice modern cockpit, safe with the carbon fiber and Kevlar. And then with the option of having the FES, that kind of pushed my direction from a Schleicher sailplane. Currently flying mm-hmm. an ASW-27 and great glider, but just not a electric op- option at this point. 
So interesting that, I mean, I know personally of a couple of people that will remain nameless for the point purposes of the podcast, but that, um, that got sustainers and then a, sort of a year or two later, you know, ended up wanting to, to just go full on sort of self-launch. So if, maybe you could talk about your, you know, what was your sort of calculus or, um, you know, thought process on, on the sustainer versus um, self-launch? It's probably kind of along the lines, like, it's just the opportunity that the sustainer offers you. And so if you're flying along and you're working one ridge and it's doing really well, but you think you're just slightly outside of your comfort zone of gliding to the next with a sustainer, you can just flip that on, motor over for a couple minutes and turn it back off. Uh, I think with the boom type propulsion sailplanes, there's just a little bit more chance for mechanical errors or them getting stuck up. The sustainer, there's really no drag penalty. Mm-hmm. And so the freedom that the electricity gives you without any of the hassle of putting fuel in, smelling fuel, or worrying about that if you've been up for four hours and it's cold, is it going to start or not? Right, right. Yeah. And then also people have challenges in higher altitude environments and and whatnot. I remember uh, Clemens talking about that a few weeks ago, you know, out in you know Colorado where it's just so, where it's so high. Our longtime sponsor of the show, The Soaring Academy, is engaged in nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also with young people for the STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility just outside of Los Angeles, nestled near the north side of the San Gabriel Mountains. They also have a fantastic flight school and are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, go to soaringacademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. Being an RC glider pilot as well as a as a real world glider pilot, um, you know, could you maybe? I, I know how the uh, how, how the propeller is is sort of mounted on an RC glider. Is it similar with an with an FES? And uh, maybe you could talk for a minute about how you know, how you kind of operationally use it and what kind of situations and um, are there, you know, altitudes that you're concerned about, all that kind of thing? Yeah, uh, so the FES, I kind of treat it just, number one, that you're still in a glider, so I'm not going to wait down really low to turn it on. It's more just, I always have a place where I can land out, and the FES comes more to my mind of I'm not really worried about making it back to the glider port. It's more, hey, can this allow me to get to another ridge continue the day, but have high enough altitude that I'm not putting myself into a bind. So unlike maybe a turbo or a sustainer type sailplane, this is nearly instantaneous power. There's two switches, one master power for the motor, the second for the control head, um, LK design, and then a little rheostat that the second you twist it, you the propellers pop out and give you thrust. Now, from my past experience, it seems to only be a couple hundred feet per minute, but that's great because even if you just maintained altitude and allowed you to get from one ridge to another, that's a really good competitive advantage on weekdays and seeing how far of it you could mm-hmm. fly along. But when you say pop out, it's not like a STEMI or something where there's like a shroud and then they they kind of, you know, come out. It, it it's I mean, the props are just, they're just kind of flush against, the nose when not in use. Um, is that correct? Yeah. So the nose dome has been cut off of the sailplane. The little motors put there and the propeller blades, they're held back by magnets on the side of the fuselage. When you turn the motor on and the blades start to spin, they pull themselves out probably centrifugally and then just instantaneously mm-hmm. give you thrust. And what about, what about drag? I mean, it's a, a Ventus three that, that didn't have, that FES setup and Aventus 3 that does, uh, you know, what are we talking about in terms of drag penalty? Is it is it completely insignificant? Is it, you know, 3%? What does that look like? I've been told it's maybe 1% to 2%. Um, I flew a Discus 2C and a Discus 2C without the FES. And from the pilot's perspective, I noticed no difference between the two gliders. But like all these modern gliders, the percentages are so small that it's just who has the cleanest glider and who's flying the fastest is probably going to win the day. <laughs> right, right. And and the and it's what a what is that like 50 52 to to one the standard 
the non FES is, is what, like 51 or 52 to one or something. You know, Shemperf doesn't really advertise an O over D anymore. When I asked, they just said, Hey, some students at the ACA league over in Germany had come up with their numbers and said approximately 55 to one. And I okay. think it's like a 10 or $15 donation and they'll send you the paperwork with your name, what are marked on, <laughs> et cetera. Right, right. Okay. That's, that's pretty cool. Okay, cool. So you, you know, stop in Germany, look at the factory. So, so I'm assuming, did you get a, you got a bit of a tour of the place then? Um, I mean, was there anything that, that stood out or something that you, you know, that surprised you or just, just something that, you know, kind of memorable about walking around the place? It's kind of nestled in a little picturesque German town. There's still the old city wall with the fortifications from the, say, a thousand years back. And so kind of a cool little experience with that. When you actually get in the street, there's cobblestones and the old Fockwerk steel buildings. It's kind of a German styles with the crisscross pieces of wood in front. And so just a traditional small town, which was a neat experience being from the Western U.S. You're just used to like brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right on. And then from there, then you headed, uh, what, south, I guess, to uh, to France, and then you spent some time there flying in the in the Alps, yeah? Yeah, so when I left um, Kirschheim Untertech in Schemperf, I drove first down to another little glider port called Unterwassen, kind of in the mountains near the German-Austria border, and they have a winch launching school. And so I spent a couple of days getting current on winch flying and just enjoying the scenery, but then met up with my wife, Melanie, down in France, and then we flew for a week at CNVV. Right on. And is there any special, you know, paperwork or checkouts or something that you got to do being a, you know, American pilot to go over there and and, and fly their you know, fly their gliders, or how does that work? Yeah, France is great. Um, you communicate with the glider club or school that you're going to fly at, send a picture of your pilot certificate, medical is required in Europe, and then logbook pages, and then they give you a temporary license that's good for your duration of your flight. In the case of CNVV, the first day I went up and flew with one of their instructors, a really great guy, Royer. And um, kind of got a little area checkout, had been there before, saw just kind of what's going on now. And then the next day, it's like, hey, there's a glider of 10, there's a hangar, I'm sorry, of 10 gliders, choose the one you want to fly. And um, I'm kind of at the standpoint, just always ask for what you really want first. And so nestled in the corner was a new JS3 sailplane. And I figured, hey, it's kind of sold as one of the better gliders in the world. This would be kind of a fun ship to fly around. <laughs> And then, <laughs> how how was it? I mean, yeah. And, and <laughs> so, so wait, you you already put your deposit down on the on the on the Ventus three, and the check, you know, the ink on the check is drying, and and now you're jumping in, uh, you know, one one of its uh, top competitors and stuff. How did how did it how did it fly? And uh, any buyer's remorse? You know, it's it was a cool glider. I'd flown a JS one a couple of years back there, both the B model with the eighteen meter wing in the C model with the 21. And um, my takeaway from that experience was, hey, I, I think I liked the Schleicher 27, 29s more. Um, this time around, I still was on the high of the Ventus 3, and it was great flying the JS, but the FES was just really the point that made the Ventus 3 a, a no-brainer for the question. What kind of a price markup? Is it, what, like a, is it like 25, 25 grand or something for the... Uh... For the FES, like how, how does that compare to the uh, standard? It, yeah, it seems to be around there. It was one of those questions I personally didn't want to know the answer to. So it's just like, hey, can I afford the glider and just move on right. to the flying Got aspect it. of it? And and do they do any special mitigation for um, potential you know, battery fire risk? I mean, are they just standard sort of like automotive type? you know, like EV batteries or, or is there anything special or funky about them relative to, um, you know, to being in a, in a glider or sort of an aviation environment? You know, I'm probably the worst person to ask this question for, but, um, I guess my big concern with the cell plane is, Hey, if there are problems with the battery, 
what's the solution on that? And Shimperf kind of just explained that they had backed up the solo engine company when they were having issues to keep their cell planes flying. And also that they got a couple other manufacturers into putting FESs in. Mm-hmm. So there's just industry support if there would be issues with the batteries down the line. Mm-hmm. I see like the Lang Antares I read recently in Nordic gliding that they're incorporating Tesla batteries wired in sequence. And so that sounds great. I'm not sure exactly what a Tesla battery is, but if the automobile manufacturers are behind right. it, probably a good direction to be heading. Right, right. And so American guy kicking around Europe, um, you know, no, no language issues or anything. I mean, just, I mean, is it, it's probably a little intimidating for some people that think about doing it haven't, haven't done it before. Do you, do you have any issues with that or just pretty straightforward? You know, I, I took high school German, but I mean, that was great for Germany, not so great for France. But uh, Google Translate is your friend. Um, oh, your you cell go. phone, you can just translate over or you can just smile, say a couple of phrases. And everyone always wants to practice English the second that you start speaking back and forth. But um, just go have fun and it always works out. Someone will speak English. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you have it. I'd say probably where the language barrier was kind of a funnier issue is when we're up flying, everyone's giving position reports every 10 to 15 minutes or so on. I have a chart in front of me of the different mountains and airspace, and there's a phonetic way to pronounce French, and then there's the connect way, the correct way to pronounce French. And uh, I probably had no idea what I was reading, nor did right. And know your what I was your high saying, school but... German didn't didn't come in uh, too too handy there. High school German didn't help, but the um, definitely the LX display with how high above the ground and how much L over D I needed to make it back to the airport was probably the best help. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Right on. So just kind of reaching back over all these, all these years, uh, if you, if you had to pick a flight or two that really sticks out in your memory as a really special day or, or flight, uh, for yourself or, you know, maybe somebody that was with you in a two seater, um, good, bad, scary, fun, anything. Um, you, you know, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe share, a, you know, one of your special flights uh, with everybody. I think kind of a cool thing with the sailplanes is it's just always a personal challenge. And so at first you're just trying to get the glider to stay up and then you're headed to the mountain that you can see on the horizon and then the peak beyond the horizon. And then you flash forward a couple of years at flights that you thought were your best flight ever. Now is just a standard routine day. And so that was probably a cool thing to just come across. Uh, the summer, I had a flight where I took off out of Warner Springs, climbed up our local mountain Palomar, hopped over to Mount San Jacinto, which kind of separates the Inland Empire from the Palm Springs area, then hopped over the pass up to San Gorgonio Big Bear, then turned around and flew down to the border of Mexico and back. And it was just great to have the confidence and comfort to fly from point to point and then not worry about where you're flying to, but how fast you could do it. And so that's been just a great transition of, going from beer liners and tail draggers to the cell plane to just have the confidence that, Hey, it's just another plane. What, what was that? Like five, 600 kilometers. That's quite a, that's quite a, uh, uh, quite a journey there. I don't know. May, maybe like 300 or something, but it was, it was still a fun flight. Yeah. That's uh and you were in your, um, you were in your, your 27 or the Nimbus. You know, it was actually, I was just flying my discus that day. The 27 had had a mechanical problem earlier. And so just, Hopped into the discus and took that up and went there and back. Nice. Nice. Right on. I know you do a bunch of uh, cross-country flying. Do you do you do it just for kind of personal edification or do, are you real big on like OLC and and and, and all that kind of stuff? And, and do you do uh, do you race you know competitively at all? No, it's just kind of for my own thing. OLC is great to see how your friends are doing. Um, I don't post on there and I'll fly with buddies, but typically I'll just kind of fly on my own and just a great solitary thing to go up and enjoy the day and see what you can do with it. Awesome. Just soaring, the makers of the Glider Sim Pro Sailplane Simulator Cockpit would like to congratulate German pilot Ben Fest for his recent victory in the first ever FAI sanctioned aviation esports event in history, the Sailplane World Grand Prix which Ben won after several days of exciting competition against some of the top Condor soaring pilots from around the world. 
If you are looking for a best-in-class dedicated sailplane simulator cockpit for Condor or Microsoft Flight Sim, look no further than the Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. Check them out at JustSoaring.com or at Just.Soaring on Instagram. But yeah, let's uh, let's kind of go back to, to France and maybe if you could share with with listeners what you know what what a, how a day is kind of structured there um and and what you liked about about that setup that'd be great if you could talk about that for a couple minutes yeah it's kind of a cool experience there's dorm housing where we all stay and there's a restaurant on the airport where all your meals are done each morning you start out with a weather briefing that's in french and unfortunately in english but what's cool and it's kind of had us come back for the last couple of years is in the morning, you'll fly with an instructor and you'll go out on a brand new Arcus or maybe a duodiscus and you'll fly around and see what type of cross-country flight you can get in. The Alps kind of start in the region there in Provence and there's plenty of ridges each direction, north, south, east, west. So however the winds are, you can pretty much plot a cross-country course that you want to do and then go out and fly it. And then midway through the flight, you'll start to turn around, come back, land, and then trade out, get in the single-seat glider and then see if you can do the same type of flight or go further or higher and just kind of a cool thing. Oftentimes when I go to a new glider port, you're just always like, I don't want to fly just in the pattern, but you don't really know the local tricks or where you can go. And this is just a great way to experience everything that their gliders offer. And then also what the region offers as far as cross country. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I've, I, I forget where I, I read or heard about it, but I, but I think the, uh, there's a, there's a glider port down in, in Namibia kind of does something. Um, and I guess it's that, it's that sort of approach to it. Um, does it, does anybody in the U S yeah. have anything remotely like that or, or not, not really, you know, nothing I found yet. I know different glider ports have specialties, whether it be like just flight instruction or Hey, it's a good place to keep your private glider, but nowhere mm-hmm. that I know, but hopefully someone does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it sounds it sounds really, really cool, and certainly does take take away a little bit of the, uh, you know, the in, intimidation um, factor out of the gate. So that's that's really cool. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Well, here's a question that we usually will will ask, um, and and sometimes people don't really have one, or sometimes they do, and it's pretty eye popping, but. But but what's the the scariest or most concerning event or you know few moments that have happened to you flying um, in a glider? And if you don't really have one of those kind of oh shit type of moments, um, what's something that that you give a little extra attention to to avoid having those moments? You know, probably the scariest events have all happened in airplanes, whether it's been the engine quits and then you use it as a glider. But in the cell plane, I'm pretty conservative of not putting myself into a spot where I feel like I'm going to damage the glider. It's more just like, hey, am I going to land out? And am I ever going to financially recover from the cost of this tow out? But um, yeah, just keep plenty of altitude, keep plenty of options, good fields, good land out strips. It's kind of my thing. This is just a hobby and something fun and not something where I want to break my glider or have to answer for it at work. Or break your back or something, right? Yeah, something even worse. Right. Okay. Okay. And yeah, I know in the pre the the pre-interview we were we were sort of chatting and we thought this would be a good one to 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 sort of toss in but um and, and you know and this has happened to kind of all of us at one time or another but we go out you know we got to the airport and you know have high hopes for the day and then and then you know shit happens um you know weather you know your main gear tires blown or um you know, you just, you just feel a little foggy and it's not really, just not really feeling it, you know, whatever. And, you know, different pilots handle that, that kind of stuff differently. And how do you, you know, how do you process, you know, those days where you kind of drove out thinking, okay, I'm going to fly. And then, and then, well, you just end up that you don't. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I kind of just joke that I always live at the airport, that if I'm not at work, I'm either in our hangar or down at the glider port camping out and, those days often are just what I call maintenance days. Open up the glider trailer, pull the fuselage out, and just sit in the sailplane, see, like, is the seat still comfortable? It's clean. Let's work on the avionics, get the batteries topped off. Just try to do a lot of preventative maintenance. 
not to cause any problems, but so that when you do fly, your glider's clean, it smells good, it's ready to go, and no big surprises when you push over to the ramp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And then, yeah, and then I know some guys will, you know, whatever, mow, mow the lawn or, you know, move rocks or do, you know, do grunt work around the, uh, you know, the airport, chip in where you can. Yeah, the airport is... It's a great place to just volunteer and help out. So oftentimes I find myself getting in the tow plane if there's a couple of gliders backed up or running the wing and volunteering if there's a group that's come out and they need help on the ground. Just whatever it takes. Gliders, definitely a lot of manpower required for just a couple people to fly. And so it's great right. to give back and contribute to the community. Right. It, it takes a, yeah, it, it takes a, takes a village for sure. So, and this is always the last question before we... We jump into the uh, to the lightning round, but uh, we always give uh, guest pilots a chance to give a shout out to people in their their soaring world, you know, cross country buddies or former instructors, airport operators, family, any anything goes. But uh, uh, any anybody or buddies you want to give a uh, give a shout out to? Yeah, I have a great friend. His name is Olivier Renault. He's from Provence and. Had a few cell planes over there in the last couple of years. We've become partners on a Nimbus 4 down at Warner Springs. And it's been a great opportunity flying cross country with him. And it's always, you go through there with two people because it's like, oh, yeah, we can make that cloud. Oh, yeah, we can make that. And so just really rewarding flights, but also having the camaraderie to share the experience. Because oftentimes in a cell plane, it's great flying by yourself, but it does get boring if it's six hours up there with no one else around. And so I'd say I've learned a lot from him and had a lot of positive experiences. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Well, uh, so that drum roll, please. I think that brings us uh, square into the, uh, to the lightning round. So, so the drill of the lightning round is, you know, keep it snappy. Uh, you can say pass if you want to move to the next one. Here we go. Are you ready? Oh, I'm all set. All right. So, if your gliding buddy's canopy pops open and he loses his hat, how many months do you go before giving up looking for it? You know, I always <laughs> like to go out for a hike, so I have yet to give up looking, and it's been about 11 months now. Something tells me that this question was planted by one of your one of your Warner cohorts out there who might have <laughs> yeah. lost his hat. I'm, uh, his name might be Bill, but it might not be. But anyway... Um, we'll keep it on the DL. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's the tail number on my glider, by the way. Um, uh, Delta Lima. So when no such thing as a coincidence, <laughs> no, exactly. So when you get a text message, uh, on your phone while you're in the air and your glider and it says, welcome to Mexico calls are a dollar 95 per minute. Uh, is your turn point a little too close to the border? Or are you perhaps too low or both? I'd start with, I'd recommend T-Mobile because then it's all free international data. Well, we know you guys press the, the Mexican border uh, area quite quite often on your on those convergence days, right? Yeah, the, the, they don't have a sense of humor with going down there. And so I'd say a sad thing is in Europe, it's great. You can fly all around. But with COVID, a lot of the international borders were shut down. Mm -hmm. And they weren't allowing the cross countries. And so it's going to be great for just normalization of back flying around again. And you've but never I, had like a, a DEA Learjet, like pull up on your wing and, and force you to land in, I've in, had uh, a, in my Mexico Cessna, and get searched, you know, all that stuff. You know, on my Cessna, I've been, had the plane inspected by customs down in Imperial Airport. And then I've been intercepted on the border. But that was always being maybe five to 10 miles north. And probably they're just bored with nothing else to do for the day. All right. Rolling right along. Uh, your favorite glider port accommodations, tent, RV, local flea bag motel. You know, the tent is always just a trusty favorite. The tent. All right. If you could fly your glider at one bank angle that is not zero, what would it be? 60. <laughs> okay. That's steep. <laughs> that's aggressive. You got to start somewhere. Okay, that's good. Uh, 
your low what is your lowest save from a land out you know um probably not so much uh land out this summer i was took off and aggressively got off climbed up a little bit up our local hill and on the way back the conditions kind of turned off but the winds were favorable to just glide straight back into the glider port so maybe like 600 feet or so i found something and corkscrewed my way up and got a text message from a buddy in another glider that hey that was pretty low but great job and so that was a fun experience and that 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 that's that's impressive that's impressive i saw i saw one of the uh, uh never mind we won't go it's there always that's, more, uh, it's always more it's always more impressive when you tell the story though we'll keep, yeah we'll, we'll keep that we'll keep that one off the uh we'll keep that one off the air um okay so guy takes off on tow says he's in a great climb Gets off at 1,500 feet. You've been waiting for an hour and a half to get a tow on the ground. And finally, you're literally getting pulled up, and you're about 20 feet from the number. The numbers on the runway. Radio call comes in on downwind from the same guy, and the ground guys hurriedly pull your glider back to the holding area. The guy proceeds to land short in the dirt, then pulls right onto the numbers in front of you on a super busy day when towing is hard. He looks over at you to try to read your face and doesn't really say anything on the radio. You A, flip him off. B, you give him a big smile and a thumbs up. C, you make no facial expression at all and make him guess. I think I would go with the letter D, but I wouldn't wait an hour and a half to take off. Like I always assemble the glider early in the morning and then just push over in the beginning. Because number one, <laughs> I don't want to miss out on the day. And number two, if there is a long line, it's like, hey, it's cheaper to tow high than to tow low twice. Well, that's true, but you know the caveat there is it it might be a commercial place with a lot of flight instruction, and a tow plane might have conked out early in the day. But anyway, moving along, uh, if you could f- fly a fully fly-by-wire glider, would you, or you like the old-school controls? You know, I fly a seven thirty-seven, which is pretty much as unfly-by-wire as possible. But I embrace technology, and so if I could fly the Nexus or whatever it's called, I would love to. Okay. Uh, next, if you had to pick just one thing, and well, you do because it's lightning round, uh, that glider pilots should focus on more to improve safety, what issue or area would that be? You know, probably landouts and carrying plenty of water with you and supplies, like In SoCal, we have a desert right adjacent to our mountains, and so oftentimes it's lower elevation, and if you fall off the hills, you can land there. But it's just really high temperatures, uh, 100 degrees plus or 40 C for our European friends. And so I'd make sure that you have something to like either hide under the wing of the glider for the shade and then just have plenty of liquid so you don't get dehydrated and possibly have some type of health issue. Waxing your glider, how often do you do it, and what type of wax um, do you use? You know, I really enjoy flying, and so I just pick up an extra day of work, and then I'll pay the local uh, maintenance shop, Yankee Composites, to wax the glider. And so they have their chemicals they like to use. Their magic special sauce? Yeah. All right. On and off cool. or something. Sorry, what's your favorite flight computer, uh, irrespective of what you have currently in your glider, uh, just what would be your ideal flight computer, and what do you like about it over others? You know, I I like using BLX Nav whenever I can get in a glider that has that. I have a clear nav in my glider, which works out just fine. It's a big map with a ring of how far I can fly, and it's optimistic, so <laughs> probably just that. <laughs> right, okay. Let's see, what do we have here? Uh, if you could only fly one type of powered aircraft for the rest of your days because that's what God ordered, uh, what would it be? Uh, I have a Cessna 185, and so I'm happy with that. Plenty of space, can take off and land, pretty much um, perpendicular to the runway and carry whatever you want on board the plane and still get there in somewhat okay time. And what glider port is on your bucket list that you haven't been to yet that you really want to uh, visit soon? Uh, kind of on the lines we're talking about in Namibia, I'd love to go down to Bitterwasser and kind of do the whole luxury camp out, go on safaris and fly 1,000K flights. And hopefully like in a Lang Antares or something cool. Cool. And uh, last, 
but not least, um, it's the end of a good soaring day. Uh, you'd rather A, have a filet at a nice steakhouse, B, have a healthy salad and iced tea uh, that you packed in your cooler, or C, uh, have some nasty McDonald's at the airport adjacent drive through this is definitely my favorite McDonald's next to the Soaring Academy at Crystal. And so it would be stop in McDonald's and enjoy everything that we've worked so hard the whole day to enjoy. It's kind of redundant. Good, 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 good answer. Good answer. Um, I, must, I must say I, I have, I have partaken uh, in, in, in the McDonald's uh, myself many, many, many a time. Uh, so, all right. Well, that was, uh, that was fun, Howie. Um, it's good having you on. Good having you on the pod, and really appreciate you taking the time. Anytime, it's great to catch up, and look forward to flying with you. All right, happy soaring, man. Yeah, likewise. Aerox, the number one in portable and engineered aviation oxygen systems, your source for FAA-approved oxygen masks and portable oxygen systems, and now introducing the Aerox Pro Two Plus Flight Bag portable oxygen system. Small, lightweight, and simple to use. The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. So remember, our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. Hi everyone, Sergio from Sorry Master here. I'm back after some intense weeks of flight testing and in order to celebrate the return to the podcast, I've chosen a very important topic to discuss today with you guys. Blue days. Blue days or days of blue thermals or days without condensation, whatever the way you want to call them, are still very challenging to most of pilots for obvious reasons. Not having visual clues of thermals makes things a lot harder for us. The psychological factor cannot be overlooked either. It is not comfortable to fly towards any direction on a blue day. Usually with training, blue days become just a nuisance. Personally, I love blue days. I know that it's not a, a common thing to hear from any pilot, but uh, uh, I'm a challenge-driven person and a blue day is a good one. So let me give you some tips and advice so you can enjoy flying this kind of day as much as I do. Soaring is not accomplished on the basis of sheer luck, but on the basis of risk management. Without visual clues, the pilot must increase the sailplane's exposure to likely thermal sources and to determine whether the thermal spacing and thermal intensity are adequate to carry out the navigation by numerical ways. The first thing to do is to determine your thermal average by using your vario, using the same procedure of any soaring flight, and then fly with a slightly lower average, about 0.5 knots or 0.25 meters per second lower than the day's actual climb rate. We do this to deal with setbacks, like missing one thermal or in case things suddenly change. If thermal spacing is long, you may have to reduce your ring setting even more to be able to reach the next thermal. Uh, the other barrier to overcome on a blue day is a psychological one, and for this you must be pragmatic. If there is a thermal average, a thermal spacing, then if nothing changes, thermal production along the route will be the same. Focus on selecting likely thermal triggers, increase the lookout for soaring birds, and get going. Once in route, the uneasiness will vanish as you see that everything works just fine, and it will work fine. For as long as the sun hits the ground, there will be thermals, rest assured. Are we vulnerable to thermal cycles along the day? Yes. Just like in any regular cumulus day, we will face thermal production cycles. And that's why we fly with a slightly lower mercury setting. To have more time and height to deal with unexpected scenarios and changes in thermal production. 
A great way to manage blue days is by sticking to the three height band technique by separating the available sortable height in bands with different tactics for each one of them. Uh, if you stick to the technique, you will easily manage the risk of outlining. But remember, in order to fly cross country, whatever the condition, whatever the day, you need to be trained and absolutely okay with the prospect of landing out. The good thing about blue days is that they make you a better pilot. So always see them as a great opportunity to improve yourself. I hope that these tips are useful for your next flight on a blue day. It's great to be back here, guys, and uh, I'll see you in the next one. Bye. Thank you, Sergio. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Thank you, Howie, for also sharing your aviation journey with us. And thank you to Mitch for that great guest hosting. Great job, man. Thank you all for joining us for episode 104. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.